podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box to this episode. Patreon is a monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. I'm Rania Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. and I'm a uh, journalist, uh, former Middle East correspondent. It's really strange to, um, uh, you know, to, to be having almost this global experience that everybody's going through at the same time. You know, I mean, obviously there's, there's a little bit staggered in terms of, um, uh, you know, how many cases there are in, in various parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's an almost collective global experience and, um, uh, you know, it's it's really impossible to tell how it's going to change everything other than the fact that we know it absolutely will change everything. That's all we really know. Um, and uh, and it, it makes it so much harder to, you know, there are so many more people who are in a much more difficult situation. You know, I was talking to um, a friend here who, um, uh, you know, who has family still in, in uh, rebel controlled parts of Syria. And uh, he was telling me about, you know, on top of everything else having to worry about them fleeing the violence that was taking place uh, last month, um, you know, towards the Turkish border. And on top of that, right now, he's worried that they're in this refugee camp where it's impossible to do anything like social distancing and um, uh, and staying away from people, washing your hands uh, regularly to keep right. away the virus. Yeah. Um, and he has to worry about that on, on top of everything else. So, uh, so yeah, it, it just it feels like the last thing we needed was a pandemic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on top of everything else. Um, although, you know, I mean, ironically, it is, um, uh, you know, putting some uh, level of quiet and rest in terms of the the usual conflicts that we're we're used to seeing, um, and uh, and maybe that's going to be for the better. Maybe once uh, you know people are you know quarantined for a bit and and they they get a chance to reflect and to breathe um you know for lack of a better word um you know after all of that maybe we'll start reassessing a little bit what really matters and whether all these conflicts we're engaged in and uh, and enduring are worth it in the long run you know i like that you phrased it it's almost a, a like a cautionary optimism and that it's giving us time to maybe re-examine our priorities um i I want to ask you maybe the flip side to that. Is there any hesitation in that because this came out of nowhere and because it more or less stalled and then stopped the recent protest movements we saw sweeping the region, particularly in Lebanon, but also in Iraq and Iran to a degree, that this may have the unintended consequence of preventing change that a lot of us saw at least beginning in October and November last year. Could the coronavirus, in addition to making us reflect, also perhaps delay or even at some point kill the recent sort of momentum that we saw for for change, for actual political change? You know, that's that's certainly a risk. Um, I think what's probably going to end up happening is going to very much be dependent on the um, the reaction of the region's governments uh, mm-hmm. to what's happening. Um, and I think uh, the coronavirus 
pandemic is actually going to expose a lot more the inefficiencies, whether it's in terms of the public health systems, uh, whether it's in terms of um, you know the, the proper response to a crisis situation, yes, um, yeah. whether they are successful in um, uh, you know in enacting all these measures that are needed to keep us safe, while mm. also uh, making sure to keep people out of poverty. Um, I think their their inability and, and failure at um, you know building a proper social safety net uh, is actually going to be exposed by the pandemic and by the ensuing you know economic chaos and by the fact mm-hmm. that so many people have to stay at home and um, you know and will be unable to work. Um, I think all of that is going to end up exposing the uh, you know the deep rot at uh, the heart of many of these governmental institutions and um, mm-hmm. and in fact I think it's going to uh, you know end up leading to a, a more sweeping. Uh, more powerful protest movement um, in its aftermath, I think. Uh, well, but it's it's all, yeah. But it's all going to depend, I think, on the on the response that these governments uh, have and whether they, you know, get their, um, you know, get their shit together, um, you know, so enough to be able to actually respond effectively to the pandemic. So, in other words, that I mean, the hesitation, and maybe this is maybe looking at Lebanon in particular, but we can sort of take it, sort of expand from there. That there's almost this knee-jerk reaction to go back to what's familiar. And that's a Lebanese sort of trait, that any time we've had sort of calls for change or reform or sort of accountability and, for that matter, sovereignty, all these things that have been on the table before, there's that inertia to take back to where we sort of, uh, what we know kind of works and has worked to a degree at some point in our history. Could that happen here, that because of the economic crisis that we saw building up to the October 17 outburst of emotion, that maybe for the time being, there will be a a reluctancy to challenge authority. And I mean this in a universal trade. It's not just Lebanon. It's not just the region. I mean, you saw Hungary a few days ago, sort of almost embracing dictatorship. I mean, I don't want to get too sort of go all the way here, but it was a stark uh, reversal of dem- democratic trends the last 30 years in Eastern Europe, and suddenly Hungary is back to this authoritarian model. Um, other countries seem to be more embracing the idea of borders more and more. And it's sort of like a coronavirus is the biggest issue right now. We, whatever it takes to end the coronavirus, even if that means letting go of genuine aspirations, or even for that matter, dignity, is, is some of that in the mix here, that perhaps protesters would want to feel comfortable as opposed to confront. Yeah, there, there's there's a couple of things there. Um, you know, I think with cases like Hungary and even, you know, cases like in, in the States, you know, just the, the emergence of, of Trump and another, yeah. uh, you know, nationalistic, um, uh, you know, strongman as a political force. Um, I don't think they invented the trends that they came to embody. Um, I think they mm-hmm. tapped into uh, or amplified a, um, a, you know, an existing trend in society and they took mm-hmm. advantage of it um, in order to, you know, achieve the political offices that they managed to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a sense, you know, I mean, Hungary was headed towards, um, you know, that form of authoritarianism, you know, as was, you know, as Turkey, um, uh, as is, as are other countries, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, um, in both Europe and farther afield, you know, in, uh, in the U.S. as well, and in, in South America, you know, in Brazil, uh, as an example. Um, so so in, uh, on, on the one hand, I, I do think that some of these trends um, existed beforehand, and um, they're probably going 
going to accelerate uh, because of the um, uh, you know the, all the different um, authoritarian esque rules that that need to be imposed in order for the virus to be you know combat combated uh, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, Another aspect of it is, uh, you know, there are different relationships that people all over the world have with their own governments. Um, you know, right. when uh, it's na- people more more naturally skeptical of government instructions in, uh, you know, in a place like uh, the U.S. Um, uh, you know, in Canada, there hasn't really been a huge resistance from a political point of view to, um, you know, orders to shut down businesses and to mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. halt uh, the economy. Uh, but there has been resistance to attempts at overreach, um, uh, you know, and uh, and gathering greater power um, during recent, um, uh, you know, bills that were being passed to to stimulate the economy, uh, that uh, the Trudeau government tried to uh, to gain more power through them, um, and right. those attempts were were pushed back against. Um, so, so that's um, that's one aspect of it. Um, I, I I do think it's um, the. the the challenge is going to be, uh, I believe, that we are going to grow more accepting of uh, various surveillance uh, technologies um, yeah. because um, it's going to because the trade-off in terms of the greater good uh, versus um, the loss of privacy is going to be more um, clear as time goes on. Uh, you yes. know, so I think uh, people are going to be more accepting of. Technology that tracks people who are supposed to be under quarantine, um, you know, and who are instead going about and and uh, infecting other people, and um, you know, the realization that this is not for the greater good, and that it is for the greater good for the government to be able to track those individuals. Uh, so I think certain technologies uh, like um, uh, facial uh, recognition, uh, like location management, uh, like broad-based societal surveillance. Yes. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think those are going to be uh, end up being more accepted. And uh, and I think people are going to feel that those technological solutions are worth uh, giving up uh, the um, uh, you know their uh, individual privacy for. More broadly, I think it's going to really be indicative of a broader change in the society. This understanding that uh, you know our own individual good uh, relies on the good of the rest of the of the community around us. Uh, and so there's going to be an evolving understanding of our relationship to. Everybody else. I don't know if it will necessarily lead to more authoritarianism. Um, it probably will lead to more measures that take into account the communal good versus the individual good, um, yes. and that's going to be, I think, a, an important transformational force in in Western societies more broadly. So, in other words, the the pandemic has just paused the polit the politics of the moment, but there's a consequence which is more in terms of intrusion and and state authority but the the demands are still there that you can't just sort of take the demands off the street and assume things will sort of go back to the way they were seven or eight months ago but you do have a technological story here that there's a authoritarianism is really the the winner so to speak of the moment yeah i mean it's uh, it's pretty clear at the moment that there are all these um uh, you know measures that are obviously being put in place to to ensure that um, uh, you know uh, people comply with all these uh, you know shelter in place or or social right. isolation orders. Yeah. Um, and there needs to be a way to enforce them, right? And um, uh, right now it means you know police are um, in the streets uh, in some countries. The army's in the streets. They're um, you know forcing people through the use of force to um, you know comply with all these orders. Um, the question is you know. 
every, in every single case in which you know a government or an authority has seized more power over time. You know, for looking at more modern uh, era examples, you know, in the post 9/11 uh, U.S. and um, and U.K. Um, you know, all of these governments seized power and they never ceded it. Uh, they always build upon it, right? And so there, there's going to need to be some sort of societal pushback in the aftermath of the pandemic uh, to to try and, and regain some of those uh, powers. But uh, but I do think our, our mode of thinking will fundamentally change where we're going to have to ask our question, you know, ourselves the question of whether this is actually uh, what we want as a society or yes. the good of the society as a whole, and you know, even if it involves ceding some measure of privacy and and, uh, and individual liberty uh, for the good of everyone, is going to be worth uh, the trade-off. You know, you just remind me of the Patriot Act. There's no discussion of even challenging it today. It's almost sort of taken for granted. It's for better or worse. It's it seems to be permanent. But there's absolutely, no, and it's uh, yeah, absolutely, and, and it's it's not just a trend with the U.S. I mean, there, there's no government that has been given. You know, uh, extraordinary powers that has uh, you know wanted to cede it voluntarily. Absolutely. Um, so, and and that hasn't happened in, in among you know American presidents who've you know over the years have expanded their 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 own authority uh, and their own power. Um, you know, through various means. It's just right now it's uh, it's even more obvious, and and the person who's in charge is a bit of a lunatic. So, <laughs> uh, so so it's more it's more clear. It's more concerning. Not, not a lot of people thought about this when you know Obama was in charge, or when you know many other presidents were in charge. Uh, before right. him that, that you know, who uh, seemed to agree with the general, you know, liberal consensus, um, mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. know, of policymaking. Uh, it's just that now we, you know, it's it's a bit like a, like you know, U.S. politicians described as an adult daycare, right? <laughs> it's almost like the personality is more important at the moment than the policy itself, although that policy is sort of consistent from the Bush years through, through to today. And I... Um, I, you know, in that whole mix, 9-11, the aftermath, and then, of course, the invasion of Iraq and the occupation, um, I think you, you tell me if this is wrong. All of the stories that we're discussing today when it comes to the Middle East, all the narrative, all the, um, all the motivation, whether it's from the state or from the people, is a byproduct of that moment in time where America sort of became more involved in the Middle East, and then our years growing up and then sort of maturing into separate careers, but that more or less dance around that subject, we've seen a disinterest, almost a retreat from that part of the world. That's really the last two decades of history. In that, I would like to explore your story. First, I'd like to know, because it's really the first time we've spoken in many years, what took you to the world of journalism and then through that, what took you to the Syrian story? And through that, I want to really explore Syria through your eyes, Syria today, and everything that has been left off of the news to a degree since the coronavirus pandemic began. So let's go back to the beginning, at least through you. What took you to the world of journalism? 
Yeah, um, I uh, so I, I started out um, had, with zero intention of, of getting into journalism. Um, <laughs> I was I, uh, so that far, but I I don't remember even that. Yes, yeah, so glad, glad <laughs> so there was yeah, so, a sort uh, of yeah. I mean. My, yeah, right. my growing up, growing up, I always wanted to be a, a like an astronomer. I wanted to study about space. Right. And uh, have you ever seen the video of Chris Hadfield, the 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 astronomer, the astronaut who was uh, playing um, Space Oddity on the space station? Absolutely, yes, yeah. yes, of course. Uh, yeah, he's a yeah. he's a hero of mine. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I grew up uh, with uh, my my father bought me lots of books about space, and I was um, I was super into that growing up, and um, and I'd always wanted to be an astronomer. Um, it ended up not being a possibility. It wasn't an option really um, at the university where I ended up studying. Uh, ended up studying in uh, I grew up in Dubai. Mm. Um, ended up uh, going to the American University in uh, Sharjah, which is in the next Emirate down, uh, which had a really fantastic engineering program. Uh, so I thought that the um, you know best way to go about it was to uh, you know join an engineering uh, degree. Mm. Um, uh, unfortunately, the the way we were taught was very um, uh, you know similar to old school uh, Arabic teachers and professors where um, you know it was less about uh, being creative and and, um, and problem solving and it felt more like uh, um, you know a um, we say in Arabic uh, telqin um, yeah, exactly. uh, it was more memorization than uh, than creativity uh, yeah. and uh, I gravitated a little bit towards the journalism program uh, because I started writing for an Egyptian sports website uh, I'm originally Egyptian I was born in uh, Alexandria mm. yes. and um, uh, and you know I started writing about Egyptian football and uh, um, you know so, that, so it's really like that because that that's the first hint of storytelling it comes yeah. through sports. Okay. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the website I was writing for was mostly targeted at Egyptians in the diaspora, so you know, I was writing in uh, in English, um, and uh, and I, so I started taking mass communications courses in class and uh, journalism classes. Um, I had a fantastic professor uh, called Joe Gibbs, uh, who was a former uh, crime reporter for the Boston Globe, um, and uh, and he um, he would fail you an entire assignment if you misspelled a single word. Um, and, and he would give you, you know, uh, deliberately complicated names uh, to try and get you to, uh, you know, uh, to stumble uh, in the writing. And um, and so he taught me very early on the importance of accuracy and getting all the facts right when right. Um, when I'm reporting right. or when I'm writing a journalistic story. Um, I still intended to go to work as an engineer at that point. But um, uh, one day uh, we had a class in which a journalist from The New York Times, uh, who later became my first um, editor, uh, came to visit our class, and um, it was around, I, I believe it was uh, 2007, um, or maybe late 2006, and um, he came to visit our class, and uh, he gave a talk uh, about getting stuck in Lebanon uh, when the 2006 war began. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, he had uh, he was visiting um, on uh, either a minor assignment or to visit some friends, um, and while he was there, the war broke out, airport was closed and so he got stuck covering the war mm -hmm. um, and uh, he told us this story uh, from the um, from the end of the uh, war in which he was visiting a, um, a mass uh, a funeral yeah. and uh, he stays behind and uh, has has this conversation with uh, with a man who was still in um, who was still there um, waiting around the gravesite and uh, you know starts up a conversation with the man and the man tells him um, eventually that uh, he had buried his wife and his daughter on that day 
Um, and I remember at that moment knowing that this is the kind of story I wanted to tell, um, that, uh, that I wanted to, uh, be able to, um, uh, to hear stories from people who've gone through, uh, such incredible suffering and who exhibited such great resilience mm-hmm. and, uh, wanting to get their stories out, uh, to the world. And, this um, was really just a, it was like a good academic moment where you have somebody who's done this for a living sharing that moment with you and that what that's what drew you into the at least the human suffering part of it because it's it's a very nice sort of opening into a world of otherwise it's a very difficult and and stressful and emotionally uh sort of uh, very very challenging terrain and so it's a when I hear football and I hear astronomy, I think of something that's a lot, uh, even though they're difficult in their own way, and astronomy is its own journey, but that they, uh, there's not much of the testing of emotional uh, patience and, 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 and suffering in that sort of world, that this is a, a, lot, a lot sadder, if that's the right word. But that, that's, yeah. well, what is it about the, uh, I mean, is, is it the politics of the story more than the actual human story itself or is it simply just the human side to it regardless of the politics yeah it was always about the individual stories mm-hmm. um i i i mean you know i had to report on the geopolitical um you know importance of the various events that i covered yeah. um you had to almost justify why you're reporting on a particular story because of mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. bigger story that it told right um but to me, it was always about those individual stories. I found human beings fascinating, and I, and I, you know, the idea that it would be my job to just go find interesting people and listen yeah. to them tell me stories about their lives um, was was incredibly appealing to me. And um, uh, you know, uh, the astronomy side of it can can feel like, um, you know, why should I care about? Uh, things up there when, you know, things down here are so blown yeah. to shit, right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but I always thought that it was um, it was a really good uh, way to kind of take a breather and look up, um, you know, mm-hmm. instead of looking mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. Uh, at all the misery that, um, uh, that, you know, we ended up reporting on. And, and I always feel like if you really immerse yourself in just the pure um, tragedy and, and heartache that um, you know, the region often exhibits, uh, you yeah. end up missing a lot of beautiful things. And, and I think, um, you know, aspects like side interests in, in something like astronomy, um, you know, help you see, um, you know, just the, the finer lines, right, in, in, uh, in what goes on and, and the broader tapestry instead of just the individual, um, you know, blood-soaked um, part of the fabric, right? Uh, I, I could not agree with you more. And I think uh, as somebody who has this sort of amateur level of understanding when it comes to astronomy, um, I, I think that moment where we saw the black hole for the first time, to me, was as profound as any sort of uh, human tale that we've heard the last few years. I mean, to me, that was, it's and it's it's a, it's sort of a, it's neutral enough that you can't really have an opinion on it and it doesn't take its toll. It's just a moment of, of absolute wonder and joy. And it does sort of let you sort of lift your head above the water. And there's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's almost like a therapeutic uh, dislodge from the pain that we know too well. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever I want to like have a good cry, um, <laughs> I go back and uh, and watch this video of um, uh, of the launch of um, uh, I, I, f I forget which uh, exactly which mission it was to Mars, uh, but it was a mission that involved a landing that was uh, that had this like multi step process that was um, you know just extremely cumbersome and difficult to get right. And yeah. um, but I I remember when it happened, I, I woke up to like watch it live on you know NASA TV and. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and and just the moment when it when they actually get the message, because obviously it takes a few minutes, of, you know, from when it happens to you know right, the, right. the yeah. arrive back on Earth, um, and just the moment when you know there was like this seven minute wait, uh, yes. you know, until they uh, until they found out if it had landed properly or not, and then when it did, and they got the news that it had landed, and just the pure joy and and uh, and excitement and um, and just pride in their accomplishment just like burst forth. Uh, you know, on yeah. on the screen, and I remember like just kind of bawling my eyes out, you know, yeah. watching yeah. watching that moment. Um, and every time I need a good cry, you know, I always go back and watch that video uh, because it's uh, yeah, it's it's just it signifies you know all this achievement, right? And these are tears of joy. This yeah. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crying from it's relief. It's not uh, sort of. Uh, it's not, it's not dark on the contrary it's very light and very, very absolutely happy. not i mean you yeah. know and, like right now um you know i always go uh, th there's this video that uh, that has just come out of um uh, the rotterdam philharmonic orchestra uh in which um you know because of social distancing they all have to practice in their own homes yeah. right, and so right. they did this video collage that is um you know all of them together playing the ode to joy from their individual uh you know houses yeah. Um, yeah. and and it's just this incredible incredible performance and uh, and every time now i see videos of people together it just uh, you know brings me to tears because uh it's like a human Absolutely. experience that um you know that is no longer really available to us right now um absolutely yeah. <laughs> but but it, so you're in a way you're choosing to become a journalist at, at the right time so to speak when it comes to covering a very important story and this is just a few years before the arab spring begins and uh you are literally i mean you're covering, I think, the most tragic of the Arab Spring stories, which is the Syrian war. Um, I know it's a big subject. I know it's been almost 10 years, if not 10. Uh, I know there's a lot of things to discuss here, so I'm going to try to compress it, only in, not to just not to uh, not to remove the human suffering portion of it, because that's that deserves its own sort of. Uh, revision later i think that's sort of uh, the most that's the darkest of the of the stories when it comes to syria the sort of um, the inability to fully comprehend the human tragedy to that story but in that world i want to get into what you did because not too long ago i think this was late last year it could be around the time the lebanese protests were starting uh, you shared a very uh, emotional uh piece, for lack of a better word, a post uh, about how the Syrian war took its toll on you and that how you were, in a way, suffering in your own isolation in Montreal pre-coronavirus, that it had sort of uh, it had sort of sucked your soul dry to a degree. I'm, uh, I'm not going to speak on your behalf here, but I'm just it touched me because I, I know that you're not the only person who has tried to expose the pain and suffering all the human stories when it comes to Syria, and there's been a an ambivalence over the years to that story. That does not discredit the quality of journalism. It is just a, a matter of fact that the, the audience has grown immune to that 
tragedy. Let's start at the beginning, the initial years. The I mean, the moments where a lot of us thought that things were changing for the better. 2011, 2012. Did you believe back then, this is hindsight, that things were going to be optimistic, that things were moving in the right direction when it comes to Syria in particular, that these protesters that we saw the first weeks, the first months, uh, trying to reclaim their dignity, that they would have a better future? Did, did you see that on the horizon going back in time now? Um, I mean, I was uh, absolutely um, just uh, in awe, you know, of the courage that, that people were displaying. You know, I mean, I was I was in a sheltered uh, existence. You know, I um, when I when I graduated, I started working in the UAE um, mm. for uh, the National, uh, which is yeah. um, an Emirati newspaper, um, and I still uh, write columns for them uh, today yeah. about Syria. Um, and um, you know, and, and so when I started covering, um, uh, you know, the the Arab Spring, it, it wasn't. You know, directly reporting on it, it was mostly kind of uh, reporting on the um, the reactions that were happening in the Gulf uh, to what was going on. Uh, I was um, right. at the time, right. and I was at the time covering foreign policy, covering politics, and things like that. And uh, in the months leading up to the Arab Spring, you know, it was uh, I wrote a lot of articles about uh, you know uh, reforms and changes to the um, uh, you know to the Federal National Council, which was sort of the, the Emirati Parliament. Um, you know, I wrote about um, you know demands for more um, uh, people to be able to vote. Uh, you know, for more yes. powers, the FNC, um, and and things of uh, things like that. Um, you know, once the Arab Spring started, uh, much of that was um, you know became sure. yeah, it was sort of yeah. like relegated to the background. Um, it was uh, it was very difficult to really um, uh, you know write about anything. Uh, politics related at the time. And, um, you know, and so the focus was on the reactions of the Arab countries towards, of the Gulf countries in particular, towards what was happening uh, beyond uh, the region. And at the time, you know, even in in the the Gulf states, there wasn't this, uh, at least in the popular level, there wasn't this suspicion of what was going on. You know, the the uprisings that were happening in Tunisia, in Egypt, um, you know, in Libya, in Syria, were just seen for what they were, which was, you know, spontaneous expressions of popular, um, uh, you know, just giving up on everything that's been, uh, you know, keeping them down for so long and and just a demand for for dignity and a a say in in their lives, you know. and, uh, and a lot of people uh, identified with that, and um, and they felt it was a very legitimate uh, and just demand. Uh, and so, on a popular level, you know, you didn't really see a lot of people who were, you know, suspicious of why there were <laughs> uprisings or why people were revolting or why people were going out in the streets. Um, even officially, there wasn't the level of, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of fear and and concern that that you know, would emerge later on as, you know, the aftermath of the uprisings unfolded. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I covered the session of the GCC that called for a no-fly zone over Libya, uh, which was yeah. the initial impetus, you know, for the Arab League to take up that call and for then the UN Security Council to take up that call and uh, and to launch, you know, the, uh, 
intervention in Libya. Um, and uh, and at the time, it was just seen as um, uh, you know as a pure uh, let's protect uh, you know these people from uh, this tyrant who's saying that he wants to go uh, you know avenue and and you know who wants to go to every corner of the country and and stamp out these cockroaches as he um, as he described them. Um, you know, uh, eventually when it became really hard to report on anything, uh, particularly after the Bahrain uprising uh, began, right. um, I uh, I decided to leave um, the region for for some time. Um, at the time, I had an opportunity to um, uh, to work with the uh, Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was, um, uh, you know, investigating uh, the series of political assassinations in Lebanon that happened in uh, between 2005 and uh, 2008, um, and uh, and it was also an opportunity to kind of expand my horizons a little bit, uh, to um, you know see other things, to go to other places, and uh, um, you know I had spent my entire life in the in the Middle East and um, and hadn't been beyond that, and uh, it was an opportunity to do so. Um, I, you know, spent a couple of years there, and uh, because of the knowledge I had um, built over time uh, about what had happened in Lebanon over the years and um, and the political situation there, and, and was closely, obviously, following the news of what was going on uh, in Syria in particular, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Egypt, uh, which was, you know, my, my own country, um, I decided, you know, to go back to being a journalist and to trying to report on what was happening in, in Lebanon seemed like the best place to, you know, resume that, uh, that career. Right. Um, it was, it was really a difficult time. Uh, I mean, when I arrived in Lebanon, it was June, 2013. Um, and so Hezbollah had just, um, you know, formally, obviously they had been part of the uh, war in Syria for, for some time by then, but they formally announced that they were intervening um, in Qusayr uh, at the time, the um, uh, the uh, border town um, near Homs. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and oh, they, sorry, on the border between, Le- yes, yes. Lebanon yeah, between Syria. Lebanon and Syria. Yes. And, and they, they announced formally that they were intervening uh, on the side of, of the Assad regime. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and you know, at the time when I arrived uh, it was the beginning of the backlash uh, towards that uh, that decision. Um, you know, obviously there were there was quite a significant number of Syrian refugees in, in Lebanon by that point, mm-hmm. um, uh, but also it was the beginning of uh, a terror campaign uh, by various Al Qaeda affiliates. Um, you know, who were carrying out attacks uh, in Shia majority areas in um, in Beirut. Um, there was a revival of clashes in uh, Tripoli, obviously between the Alawites. And the Sunnis there. Um, there were clashes in Sidon as well between, you know, Salafist groups like uh, Ahmed Lasir's um, uh, group uh, with the Lebanese state. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yeah, and I I was there, and I was Egyptian, and uh, being Egyptian kind of um, uh, you know gives you some level of immunity, um, you know, from uh, people's preconceptions towards journalists in Lebanon. Um, I mean, I was working for a local newspaper. I was working for the Daily Star uh, at the time. Um, And, uh, you know, everybody has an assumption about, you know, because every Lebanese TV station or or news outlet usually has a political affiliation, right? Um, And, uh, you know, some are more clear than others, obviously. Uh, But, you know, when you go as an Egyptian, um, everybody kind of projects their belief system <laughs> onto you. <laughs> yeah. um, you but know, they're so. projecting their, their, they want to know your views on Egypt, I'm guessing. And that's, uh, and yeah, that's, well, but they don't, uh, they don't ask you your views on Egypt. They, they assume that they know right. what your views on Egypt yeah. are, and they assume that they align with 
their right. interests. So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. for example, um, you know, Christians would assume that I am pro CC. Um, Sunnis would generally assume that I'm pro brotherhood, um, and uh, and Shia uh, Lebanese would assume that you know because in Egypt we venerate the Prophet's family. Um, you know, because of Egypt's history as a Shiite country before Salah al-Din, um, uh, you know, took uh, took power in it. Um, so we have all these shrines for for Ahl al-Bayt, you know, the Prophet's family. Uh, so so the Shia assume that you are so also. This is literally this is not a win. This is a win-win-win situation. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I never had any issues, uh, you know. And also, the Egyptian accent often, um, you know, elicits um, you know good memories because sure. people, yes, yeah, course. people yeah. remember the TV um, soap operas and uh, and shows that they watched in Egyptian, yeah. you know, if they were kids, um, and so it creates this immediate connection. Um, although a lot of people expect you to tell jokes right away, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it made it it made it really easy to. Um, you know, to go anywhere in Lebanon, uh, yeah. you know, I didn't have any issues, uh, you know, going and reporting in Tripoli in the middle of a clash uh, that was unfolding or, you know, going to Sidon and reporting on the violence there, going to any of the Palestinian refugee camps whenever there were any uh, clashes or fighting, you know, reporting on bombings in, in areas controlled by by Hezbollah, um, you know, and, uh, and so uh, very quickly, Lebanon was this um, just, it, it was this incredible place that, I that, that really made me who I am, that, that shaped who I am as a person um, to a great extent. Um, and obviously covering what was happening in Lebanon at the time was never divorced from what was going on in Syria. Um, you know, next door there was, um, uh, Lebanon was always living in, uh, you know, under Syria's shadow, even when Syria was broken. Um, These years at the Daily Star, was it, I mean, when it, when it came to at least the Syrian story, were you reporting on that human level, sort of uh, the suffering of Syrians in Lebanon as refugees, as displaced? As I mean, was it was it um, less politics, more human in that sense when it came to at least those years? Because Daily Star, to me, I mean, everyone knows somebody that's been through the Daily Star. It has sort of uh, hundreds of journalists have made their names through that through that uh, newspaper and unfortunately it's going through difficult times yeah. due to the economic crisis and, and many things but um, was that sort of the way for you to begin exploring the human side to the Syrian story or was that already there was that sort of uh, that you were already certain that you wanted to sort of go that route yeah um I mean, this was it was always an element of my reporting. I, I didn't go to, um, you know, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to bring this up, but I mean, I, I covered uh, your father's assassination um, when uh, when I was in Beirut. And, um, uh, you know, so, some of the like, I still remember individual elements of the scene there, um, you know, the. The, the trees, one particular line was, uh, you know, had its leaves burnt off, um, you know, because of the direction of um, uh, of the explosion. Um, and, um, you know, it was always those, I, I, those. And I know I know exactly what you're talking about. It was yeah. always those individual um, signifiers of something that had been broken and, and something that had been lost um, that to me were always the um, the most important element that I wanted to reflect on and, and, and to observe. I got to spend um, uh, 
quite a bit of time with your brother um, in the immediate aftermath of, uh, mm. of the assassination, and uh, um, and I spent quite a bit of time talking to him uh, then and afterwards too. And um, and it's a it's a relationship I, I cherish. Um, and um, and you guys have a, you know incredible resilience, and uh, um, and and it, and it means all. And, and I you know I didn't get a chance to to tell you this, but it means uh, an enormous amount for me to you know be here talking with you because um, I uh, I can't imagine. Um, going through uh, an experience like like the one you went through, um, and um, yeah, and I, uh, you know, I'm just filled with with love for you, for your for for your brother, for for your wonderful uh, mom. You know, you guys welcomed me into your home. You know, at such a um, at such a difficult time, and and um, uh, and it's it's always going to mean so much to me that you're being, um, too, you're being way you're being way too generous and way too kind Kadim. and i i you're whatever for better or worse your uh, journalist skills are going to almost bring me to tears so don't go <laughs> don't get don't get any deep otherwise this is gonna <laughs> end in complete <laughs> tragedy <laughs> I, don't, I don't i i don't want that um i'm going, I just, I'm uh, going to i'm going to deflect and reverse it the honor is mine to be talking to you. That's that's very so, kind of you. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's you know, to give you an example of the you know Syrian refugee issue, for example, um, you know, it was uh, even then there was still there was donor fatigue. You know, even then people were saying that uh, we're bored of, yeah. or tired of reading of stories about the suffering of, of uh, you know Syrian only, refugees. That's two less than three years into the war, so it's really yeah, the, yeah. the out yeah. Yeah, 100%. And and so, you know, constantly we had to figure out new ways of telling the story. You know, we had mm-hmm. to figure out, um, you know, just a way to to tell it in, in a compelling way that draws people in, that, that gets people to experience what it is exactly these individuals are going through. Um, you know, and I, I remember one of the first stories I did for the uh, for the Daily Star about uh, the refugee crisis. Um, you know, there was a, a winter storm that was coming into Lebanon um, uh, around, I think it was November 2013, uh, mm-hmm. and it was called the Storm Alexa, oh, uh, yeah. which is so yeah, it was a very, it was a very odd name for a storm. But before, um, before Google's little uh, friend, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, and we were thinking of ways to cover, um, you know, the, the the its impact on refugees without, you know, saying like X number of refugees live in Lebanon, their their, you know, tents are going to uh, overflow and many people are going to die, you know, from from freezing to that. Um, so, you know, I asked the newspaper and they agreed to this. And, and I went and spent the night in in one of the refugee camps with one of the families, um, you know, to kind of give people an insight into how they spend, how they lead their lives, uh, into the conversations that they were having about the storm um, and about how they were going to survive, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, during this winter weather. Um, and it was, you know, one of the most uh, the widely read stories that I wrote for the Daily Star at the time. Um, it, and it, and it, at that moment, I really understood that when you sort of move past like the the global geopol- geopolitics of, of any particular crisis, people start to identify with what you're talking about. People can understand the level of human suffering when you're talking about an individual, um, you know, who has, uh, you know, yeah. like a, you know, three daughters and and a boy, um, you know, and, and they're all worried about freezing to death uh, up in the mountains. You know, uh, it's a lot more easy. It's yeah. a lot more simple to comprehend that as a concept. Right, than it is to right. comprehend the suffering of a million people. Um, so, so like, in other really words, one one boy's tragedy, and and I mean, we that that image is permanent. The 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 child sort of face down in in the water. Uh, his name escapes me now, and I feel bad for. Alan Kurdi. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. And I, I mean, but it's just that that image 
sticks and it, it stays and you feel the pain. It's interesting you're saying that. I mean, we always hear about statistics and numbers and sort of figures, and that doesn't have any uh, emotional resonance. It's it's shocking, but it doesn't sort of hit the way that sort of one child's tragic end does. So you, you in a way, I'm getting from you that no matter how much reporting on the actual numbers and the, the real sort of damage, it was the human story that was more effective in delivering uh, what was happening. Absolutely. I mean, you know, th there's just such a dehumanizing element to saying, you know, two dozen people were killed, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I uh, the the website I work for now um, is called Al Hadoud. Right? They they're uh, they're an Arabic uh, satirical uh, news site, yes. and uh, one of their most powerful black comedy articles um, is an article about a bombing in Iraq uh, that um, that in one go. Uh, you know, it was at the time when there were a lot of bombings happening in Iraq when when ISIS had, um, you know, was like in the immediate, um, uh, you know, aftermath of ISIS taking over, uh, you know, large swaths of Iraq. Uh, and one of the articles said, um, uh, you know, single bombing in Iraq claims daily quota of victims. Um, you know, and yeah. and the, the idea yeah. was to kind of like illustrate how, you know, the coverage internationally is about like, you know, just, yeah, it's like, you know, 100 people died today, 150 people died today. There's no immediacy or, or there's no, um, you know, those people all had names, you know, those people are all, uh, yeah. you know, they, they're somebody's, um, uh, you know, son, daughter, husband, yeah. wife, mother, father, you know, um, so many stories were broken and so many, um, you know, were cut, and so many dreams were cut short. Uh, by this bombing and, and and you know they don't even get the um uh, you know just the, the 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 generosity of you know recognition that their lives have ended um you know the value of human life can feel so uh shallow um in in the middle east you know and so so worthless um i remember uh you know during um uh, in, in 2017 when when i went to syria to to cover the um the chemical attack in, in khan shaykhoun in, in 2017 um we were in a car with the with the you know the militia that was escorting me to the site of the um uh, of the bombing and uh, one of the guys there made a joke about how uh, you know they should kidnap me and and try to ransom me uh instead of actually taking me to the bomb site um, because that would be more profitable to them. Um, and I said, well, I'm Egyptian. Nobody's going to pay you anything, <laughs> you know? uh, which which was true, you know, and, and everybody laughed about it, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they made the joke that, you know, well, they should treat me really well. And then, you know, I once I leave, you know, they'll be able to, like, bring in more foreigners and, you know, maybe kidnap them and they'll be worthwhile uh, to, to ransom. Um, you know, but but the I, I constantly understood that and I constantly felt that lack of value uh, that was placed in human life. And so whenever there was one of these traumatic incidents, I always tried to zoom into, you know, individual um, uh, things or signifiers um, that that indicated how, um, you know, whether it was the resilience of people or the scale of loss yes. or, or something of yes. the sort, um, you know, and, and that's you almost, you almost kept that New York Times journalist's uh, story intact with you, because that's well, like that's the first sort of. Uh, I mean, I I, I I I can see the story. I can almost smell it. I, I know the sounds of that kind of story, and that's sort of like a. It's almost like a template that you can use later for for different tragedies. It's almost like a storytelling technique, uh, so to speak. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't think of it as a technique so much or, or, or like as a, um, you know, as a sort of like structured way to go about it. Mm-hmm. I just wrote about what I remembered from the scene, you know, or the things right, that stuck right. with, right? Um, so, you know, I mean, the thing I uh, I remember this particular uh, bombing that had happened in uh, in Beirut, uh, I think it was in Bir Hassan. Um, and, um, you know, the bombing was in February 20, uh, 2014. 14, yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it was a double bombing. There was one uh, attempt uh, that had, um, uh, so it was two two vehicles. The first one targeted an Iranian cultural center. Yeah. Uh, and the second one was supposed to strike at, uh, you know, the people who had gathered to help the wounded afterwards. Yeah. But the, the force of the first um, explosion was so powerful that um, both explosions almost happened almost simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, the second car was in front of an orphanage uh, when it uh, when it blew up. And uh, we hadn't realized that when we got to the scene of the of the attack. And so, you know, we're interviewing people who mm. were eyew- eyewitnesses and so on. And then yeah. all of a sudden, um, you know, this um, this line of kids just emerges out of you know a side door and and they come out and apparently they had been having a birthday party um you know and, and it was like because most of them were orphans uh, nobody really knew when exactly they were born yeah. and so they had uh one birthday party every year right. for yeah. everyone yeah. and it happened to be on that day that they were having it uh and unfortunately none of them were were you know uh were killed in, in the attack but uh you know they came out and they still had some of them still had like um you know markers on their faces and and um and i think some clown noses and, and things like that um and they were crying such a, like it's such a bizarre scene yeah see, and amidst the carnage this sort of exactly but it's it's the one thing that sticks with you, right? Yeah. It's um, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. it's it's those it's those moments that um, that really stick with you. You know, in, in the same bombing, I, I went back uh, that evening uh, or the next evening to interview some more people about how they were picking up their lives. You know, um, and uh, and there was this. Um, I went up to one of the apartment buildings that was very close to the to the bombing, and and the railing had been blown off of the balcony. Um, but you know, I went upstairs and I started interviewing the the. There was a, an elderly man who was living there, and um, his daughter was there um, and they had set out uh you know two chairs and a table and a pot of coffee out on the balcony that was you know basically just a you know didn't have like any separation between it and the street um and they were setting it up because they were going to spend an evening you know just reminiscing on the balcony uh you know and in, all the while their apartment was completely smashed to bits and everything was just you know, broken and all over the floor. Um, so it was always those moments that really stuck with me. And, and what I tried to do was always just to tell those stories because they're the stories that stuck with me and that felt like they mattered, um, right. you know, more so than, uh, you know, why in the grand scheme of things were, you know, trying to make sense of it or, or why were people being this way to one another. Um, it, it felt more immediate and more real to talk to people in the person rather than in the abstract and, and to you know treat their lives as part of a game of chess. But okay, so this is now. I mean, this is during the in a way, Lebanon's own suffering when it came to the Syrian war, the spillover into Lebanon, and then you're sort of also at 2017. You're in a way reporting on a very dangerous turn of events in Syria, a repeated chemical attack, and we. I mean, the accountability. Uh, side of the story. Did you at any point see that all this sort of human human tragedy, that there would be justice at the end of the day, that there was going to be some change on the ground 
there would be a political restructuring, there would be some level of reform. Was there any sort of uh, light at the end of the tunnel? Because all, all of these stories are, are ones of, um, I mean, it's, it's sort of like an increase in despair. There's very little to look forward. There's very little hope in this sort of wider story. So did you ever sense that there was going to be a good ending to all that you were seeing and, and reporting on? Uh, once I started reporting on Syria, no. Um, mm. I mean, that 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 remains the, the thing that just nags at me the most. The fact that so many of these, you know, lives were cut short, um, dreams that were severed, um, that nobody's going to pay for it. Um, that that it's uh, it's going to continue with impunity, and uh, there will never be uh, a proper accounting for what's going to happen. You know the way it's going right now. You sense that at the at the beginning, at the beginning of your reporting on Syria, you you felt that this was going that this was a fact on the ground, so to speak. Um, when when I started reporting on Syria, uh, you know the situation was much more fluid uh, militarily. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it seemed just as likely that the regime in Syria might collapse as you know uh-huh. the, the yeah. you know as it might win. Like there, there was no um, there was no clear uh, path to an end game um, in the conflict yet, yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. and so things were basically up in the air. And so we were quite busy sort of reporting on, um, you know, the we were consumed by the military developments that were going on, which were, which were quite significant at the time. Um, you know, the rebels had taken over large pieces of territory. Uh, eventually, by the end of 2015, uh, which is um, uh, early 2015 is when I started uh, working on, on Syria for The Guardian. Um, mm. By the end of the year, uh, you know, the Russians had intervened, right? So, so and they eventually would turn the tide of the of the war uh, completely. Um, you know, so at a time when uh, the rebels were, you know, the ascendance uh, for most of 2015, by the end of the year, uh, you know, the tide had turned and, and the Russians had intervened and rescued um, yes. Assad. Um, and, you know, and once we got to 2016, we started seeing like the major campaigns that were uh, starting to unfold, uh, really brutal campaigns to reclaim, uh, you know, uh, various parts of the country like uh, Aleppo, uh, like Eastern Ghouta afterwards, um, you yeah. know, Damascus suburbs, um, uh, and now, uh, you know, Idlib. So, uh, so yeah, when I when I started covering it, it was very much about like what are the latest military developments, um, you know, where, in which direction is the are the trends of the fighting, you know, going, uh, and and less of a focus on, uh, you know, how things were unfolding for you know real people on the ground, right? Um, yes. This was with the exception of, you know, areas that were under ISIS control, uh, you know, because um, there were uh, repeated, um, uh, you know, I I hate to call them that, but repeated photogenic atrocities, um, you know, the the destruction of um, of heritage, uh, you know, the uh, the spectacular executions that they were carrying out, um, you know, and they were very much in in the ascendance at the time and very much the uh, obsession of. Western policymakers and uh, mm-hmm. Western media outlets. Uh, so there was a very strong focus on on that particular um, element of the crisis, uh, and everything else uh, became a sideshow, um, you know, yeah. to to uh, to most people following Syria abroad. Uh, when in reality, uh, what was happening with ISIS was, you know, a symptom of just how cruel the conflict had become, um, and were you know was just kind of. Uh, sucking the oxygen out of every other element of the conflict that was unfolding and that was very real and that involved, uh, you know, Syrians suffering on, a, on an enormous scale. Um, so yeah. so, uh, so even, yeah. the, even the audience's patience had already sort of run out by then, that there was yeah. little, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, when you think about it, like, it was very complicated to write anything about Syria, you know, particularly yeah. when, you know, you went on to sort of when Turkey would you know, eventually intervene militarily in the conflict as well, you know, and, and sort of the, the Kurds became, um, you know, a really important uh, component of the of the conflict because they, you know, eventually allied with the U.S. to fight against ISIS, um, you know, to try and write a basic news story about Syria, you know, involved something like 500 words of exposition and explanation, and about 100 words that you had to actually tell people what had happened. Right. Absolutely. It became, you know, eventually became really difficult to do any of that. And, you know, as the regime sort of with the assistance of Russia, began reclaiming territory and began launching all these like incredibly brutal campaigns to to take back control of various parts of the country. Um, the focus then went back onto the suffering of uh, of ordinary humans, uh, you know, who were trapped under siege in a place like uh, like Eastern Aleppo or in Eastern Huta or in Madaya, yeah. you know, the town yeah. that was starving to death. Um, you know, and and so that's that's all I had wanted to do and um, uh, uncovering that uh, really gave me an insight into uh, into just how uh, cruel people can be to each other. Uh, but it also showed me that uh, justice was an incredibly elusive concept for us um, in the Middle East. Uh, you know, um, that, that, that trip to, to Syria to cover the chemical attack, um, you know, the, the main, um, uh, the main story I tried to tell in um, in the articles I wrote from there were about um, uh, this uh, this man Abdul Hamid Yusuf who had lost uh, two infant children um, in the chemical attack, as well as his wife and a number of other members of his family. I think in total there were about eighteen or, or twenty who had died in, in the attack. Um, you know, and um, and the realization after I left that nobody was ever going to pay for the fact that his two infants, uh, you know, died uh, before their time uh, was was incredibly um, uh, was incredibly shocking to me. And it's something I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, <laughs> wallowing over, um, you know, in the in the intervening months between then and when we ended up moving to Canada, because uh, I you know, I just kept going back to that moment and realizing that for a lot of people, the only justice that they hope to see is justice in the afterlife. And um, they're not going to get it now. I, I don't want to get, I mean, I don't want to push too hard on this. You'd say as much as you'd like. Is Did it take its toll on you to the point that you moved to Canada? Is that part of the story here that you wanted, you could, it was just too much to take as a reporter? Um, hmm. I think it played a role. Uh, I mean, up until that point, um, uh, look, I mean, it's um, the, the our immigration uh, decision was was you know complicated and involved the fact that you know I'm Egyptian, my wife is Syrian, and uh, we had the opportunity to immigrate, and we didn't want if we had a kid, uh, you know, for him or her to have an Egyptian passport or a Syrian passport. Uh, that was certainly an important uh, aspect of it, you know, particularly by the time. I left Turkey, you know, the sentiment was, you know, turning decisively against Syrians in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, uh, it, it became, uh, you know, it became more challenging uh, yes. to, um, you know, to and, it, and the realization that we were vulnerable uh, because of the passports we held uh, and because of the 
lack of human life attached to those passports, yeah. um, you know, was an important component in making that that call. So um, things, in a way, things lined up at the right time to do that move, d- despite of the reporting per se. It was yeah. All, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, for for a while, I mean, we didn't really. I mean, it it took a while for us to come to that conclusion, and I was you know quite mm-hmm. reluctant. I mean, I was uh, I was enjoying a, a great you know career with the Guardian. Um, you know, we had uh, we had you know a lot of friends. We, we were able to travel. Um, you know, we were relatively well off. You know, compared yeah. to uh, to a lot of people around us, um, and yet. And yet, you know, like every time, like I, you know, every night I spent on the balcony just sort of thinking about the, you know, the latest story I had written or the latest group of people to perish, you know, for for no discernible reason, um, you know, just filled me with this realization that we are so small, you know, and and that we uh, and that we don't matter um, and that, you know, if anything happens, um, we won't matter, and, and nobody's. That's your, that's your astronomy side speaking. That you're insignificant at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I wish I was insignificant in the um, grand scheme of the universe because right. I can Absolutely. I can understand that because of yeah. the scale, right? Sure. Um, but but it's so difficult when you realize that your life is essentially worthless to um, you know the people in charge, and and uh, you know that that your life won't really matter. Um, you know if it were to be taken away or if it were to be crushed, you know, um, we were covering stories of that all the time. Right. And, right. and so, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't a huge stretch to imagine yourself in, in the same situation if you did not have, you know, the backing of an institution like the guardian, or, you know, if you were, um, sure. you know, just sort of like living somewhere without, um, you know, uh, the, the, the level of protection that exposure in international media uh, affords you. Right. Um, and, uh, and so it, it made sense to invest in being a citizen somewhere where that mattered and where that had meaning to it and where that afforded you a level of protection um, that you couldn't have otherwise. That's well said. And I think uh, anyone, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it, it, it ended up, it worked out at a time, I think, where probably it was, I mean, the Syrian story has such a bad ending. And I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's just, uh, it speaks volumes that, you cannot sort of be in Syria today having witnessed 10 years of of positive change. Instead, it's 10 years of immense pain and suffering. And maybe it does require some distance at this time in a way to step back and maybe maybe heal to a degree. Um, before leaving that subject, I just want to touch on one thing, which was you're now in the West. You're in Canada. We, we spoke about... Uh, Russia getting involved, Iran and other countries sort of stepping in. And we'd also touched on Hezbollah's role and then ISIS and all that. The American chapter to the story, it kind of goes back to where we started at the beginning. The Is it a justified uh, disinterest in what's happening? Is there, a, is there any sympathy to America's reluctance to get involved? At least on this, on the, uh, the the almost what we would consider probably the bare minimum, which is preventing further human suffering, not letting this turn into the worst chapter in Middle East history, in modern Middle East history. Is is there um, is there anything about the American attitude that is, in a way, one could say is is uh, is justified and makes sense? 
Oh, oh yeah. I mean, like I understand the the instinct absolutely. I mean, you know, if I was in any sort of decision making, um, uh, you know, capacity, I, I very much doubt that, um, you know, I would make the case for why you know American troops need to intervene in a uh, faraway conflict that you know, did yeah. not seem to have an obvious sort of, um, uh, you know, national security interest. Uh, plus, I don't think anybody could have really, um, you know, foreseen quite the level of destruction and cruelty that would unfold um, as part of the conflict. Um, but I, I will say this, though. Um, I, I think that having international law means something. I think that having a collective understanding of universal human values matters and means something. Uh, I think the, um, you know, the responsibility to protect ordinary human beings from butchery is something that should mean something. Um, and, um, and, you know, international law, uh, you know, part of it is, you know, uh, part of it is appropriated through like, you know, security council resolutions and whatnot, but part of it is customary. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like what we agree collectively as an international mm -hmm. community is OK to do. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and if it's not OK um, for people to, you know, bomb their own civilians with with toxic gas, um, then there should be consequences to that. Right. Yes. There should be consequences to something like bombing hospitals. Um, you know, there, there should be consequences to, you know, besieging human beings and starving them to death. Yeah. You know, all of these things should have consequences because we don't want to live in a world in which it's okay to bomb hospitals mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to, you mm -hmm. know, toss chlorine and, and sarin at people. And, you know, what, what international inaction in Syria has done is that enough hospitals have been bombed enough people have died yeah. um, that all of these norms have been eroded yeah. um, and yeah. they no longer matter in the grand right. scheme of things. And, you know, this is something that matters globally. Um, you know, we, the fact that this cruelty was tolerated and this impunity was allowed to go on um, led to this enormous uh, movement of people who were fleeing, you know, really immense violence that is unimaginable to yeah. to individuals who did not live through the Syrian war inside Syria, um, you know, and and that in you know led to the the um, the amplification and and, um, and the emergence into the mainstream of all these um, you know populist uh, nationalist xenophobic anti-immigrant yes. movements yeah. um, in the West. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's almost I mean, it's, you know, the, the whole idea behind, uh, you know, a, um, a butterfly uh, wing flap, you know, leads to a hurricane uh, halfway around the world. Um, you know, this this decision not to enforce uh, the, the rules based international order that we were all supposed to believe in, um, you know, led to this mass movement of people that eventually led to the undermining of the international rules. -based right. Order. Right. So that, that is like almost a, an expectation that we all took for granted that there would be some consequence to that that kind of attack on human population. That that there, the fact that there was very little, if any, has sort of uh, made the conflict much much harder, and and made other conflicts much more likely down the road. Absolutely, and and it's made the cruelty that is likely to unfold in those conflicts, um, uh, you yeah. know, more real because yeah. there was no consequence, there was no punishment for all the atrocities and, and the war crimes and crimes against humanity that took place right. in Syria, um, you know, and ultimately, 
it, it would have been the decent thing to do to protect human beings from that sort of suffering. You know, we, we made promises, like as international communities, right? Never again that we weren't going to allow things like the genocide in Rwanda to, to repeat itself. Things like the, the wars in the former Yugoslavia to, to repeat themselves, the Holocaust to repeat exactly. itself. Um, and, uh, you know, and we shirked that responsibility and, and never again doesn't really mean anything anymore. You know, I, I mean, there's always talk about that, the bare minimum, which would have been a no-fly zone over parts of Syria. Did any like let's say the the basics was that did you expect those things to happen at some point was there almost a uh, this is inevitable the Americans will have to get involved to some degree at some point or or were you able to kind of see at the beginning that there's really just no interest here that we're headed towards real real tragedy yeah you know I mean it 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 wasn't entirely clear what the justification was for why you know something as basic as a no fly zone was was never implemented uh you know I mean we reported on particularly Turkey was pushing very hard for it because you know mm-hmm. the fact that a lot of the people who were fleeing the the bombardment were fleeing into Turkey oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. and uh, you know this was uh, this was a question that you know, was always on the agenda. The Turks always, you know, pushed for it um, uh, as far as we could tell as a, uh, you know, possible uh, way to ameliorate uh, the crisis as mm-hmm. um, as it was unfolding. Um, and uh, it just was never taken seriously as something that was likely to do. Um, you know, th- there were there were always reasons not to do anything about what was, uh, what was happening on the ground. Um, the tragedy, of course, is the fact that, you know, Turkey then went ahead and imposed a no-fly zone um, in February, um, you know, as part of its retaliation campaign against the yeah. Syrian regime, um, yeah. you know, and and did so with you know minimal loss of uh, of life or military equipment, um, and uh, you know, and it became clear that all the arguments against a no-fly zone to protect civilians, such as you know, it's going to be dangerous, uh, it could you know spark a war with the Assad regime, uh, you know, it could expose uh, you know our planes. To um, uh, you know, to being taken down or, or to or to being destroyed, all of that was complete nonsense. The, the Syrian yeah. army is is decrepit and, and has zero capacity to actually resist any you know form of no-fly zone that was going to protect civilians. Um, and it's a shame that it took so many years and so many hundreds of thousands of lives to realize that the bare minimum could have been done to protect yeah. so many people. There is a document. It's all the years of reporting. It's the hard work a lot of reporters uh, did when it came to at least exposing the the human side. I think uh, you are part of that wider story. I'm glad you're still a I'm glad you're still a reporter technically, even though you're not reporting per se there on the ground about Syria. You've turned to satire. Satire is a different weapon altogether. And I just want to wrap it up by asking you this this world of satire. Uh, do you, do you see the um, Maybe broadly, uh, the uh, politics in the Middle East, uh, the moments that I've kind of stepped out of my own cocoon is when uh, there's humor involved. And it could be humor in the most uh, obvious ways. Uh, It could be um, Basim Youssef, for example, uh, making direct fun at the regime and then unfortunately getting kicked out of Egypt as a result. It could be the Lebanese uh, ways of chanting on the streets. uh, Yeah. You know, sometimes we come up with melodies that are quite vulgar, but they're hilarious, and they often involve someone's mother's something. <laughs> These are funny, and this, and it, I think all of that is sort of 
there's delivery that they, you uh, you get somewhere with these uh, with these moments. Uh, do you see the power in in comedy in satire, and is it is it also does it feed into the moment that this sort of uh, beyond that example you gave earlier about the Iraqi sort of statistics page, uh, is it sort of do, does it add fuel to the uh, the fire of of dignity of of uh, reform of basic uh, demands on the streets that this is part of that or is it simply just a sort of um, it's like a side story that this is sort of just a reflection it's not really sort of there on the streets um, I mean I, I I don't think any satirist will, will would grant himself the um, uh, <laughs> you know the, uh, the the power that, that, that you ascribe to to uh, you know what uh, what they do but you know yeah. you are right I mean the absurdity of everything that happens is is insane, right? I mean, we, we have sometimes days when um, there's there's a feature that we have called Leita al Hadud, which is you know when, when something ridiculous happens and but is real, and we yeah. publish it and, and we say like you know we oh we wish we would have come up with this story, right? But we didn't, and there are so many days when you know there are stories like that in the news that we just sort of look at it and we're like. What? <laughs> Why didn't we come it's up with this idea? On its own, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, um, I, I think there there are various elements to it that that are really important. So, so the the most important thing I think is to punch up. Right. It's it's mm-hmm. worthless to like make fun of people who, you know, are weak or, yeah. um, you know, don't have control over their destiny. Right. We right. should always punch up, you know, towards the authorities um, and, and, you know, towards the, the power uh, structures in society. And, and this just does not does not just involve, uh, you know, people who are in power, uh, literally, you know, as in their their holding political office, uh, but also structures like patriarchy, uh, you know, that um, uh, that, you know, empower uh, males and disempower uh, women, um, you know, all these, uh, you know, the, the racism that, uh, you know, in the Gulf, you know, puts down, um, uh, you know, migrant workers, um, you know, all these, um, all these various um, uh, elements uh, that add up to callousness in society against um, weaker individuals, you need to punch up to resist, uh, to, to resist that. I think when we make fun of, um, you know, particularly at this at this moment, right? Uh, I mean, the the Lebanese protest movement, uh, the Sudanese protest movement, the Algerian protest movement, uh, they they broke this uh, to a certain extent. I wouldn't say they broke it, but but they. Uh, you know, chipped away at this barrier of fear that had been erected in the aftermath of the counter-revolutions uh, in the Arab Spring. You know, uh, we we lost um, the physical spaces, right, in which we could protest and in which we could, you know, have these conversations about what our societies ought to look like. Um, and so we had to move a lot of those conversations onto the virtual sphere. You know, we're getting back there thanks to, um, you know, the Lebanese protest movement and other vanguard movements that, you know, really captured the imagination of Arabs again. Uh, but there's still, it's still really difficult to go out and protest in, in you know, in Egypt or, or in uh, Saudi Arabia or, right. in, you know, the, the, the Lebanese, Sudanese and Algerian protest movements, uh, you know, they all started chipping away at this barrier of fear that had been, you know, re, that had been erected after, you know, the aftermath of the counter-revolutions, mm-hmm. um, you know, throughout the Middle East, um, you know, that pushed back against the demands of, uh, you know, the, the Arab Spring. Um, and so, you know, we've had to move a lot of those conversations off of the physical 
um, uh, right. you know, squares uh, onto virtual uh, platforms and networks, um, you know, so that we can have those conversations about what are, you know, the issues that affect our societies, about what our societies ought to look like. Uh, and so we need to have those those conversations somewhere and, and we can't have them uh, in the physical space. What yeah. satire does is that it strips away, you know, points to the emperor and says the emperor is absolutely naked and has no clothes. Um, and, and that helps, you know, break the, that barrier. Um, one other really valuable aspect of it, I think, though, is the fact that it lets us interrogate, um, you know, beliefs that we have um, without, be, without beating us over the head with it. You know, it's just... It, yes, it, it yeah. mocks, you know, societal um, actions or or norms that ought to be wrong, um, mm-hmm. you know. But but in in such a way that you know, like, do you really think that you should be doing this? You know, do you really think what you've got right. there is like is, is right? You know, one of the most popular articles in in Al Hadud, I think, was um, was a piece about a child who was born to parents of the right religion. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, and and uh, it was like you know, lucky baby born to parents of the right religion, <laughs> right? So and and it doesn't at no point in the story does it specify does it what their religion, <laughs> yeah, what, what their religion actually was. Um, you know, and uh, it, 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 there are, there are multiple articles about um, you know sexual harassment, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's an article about uh, you know a, a man who opened a popcorn stand for all the bystanders who sit and watch, uh, you know, the, um, the sexual harassment unfold in front of them. Um, you know, and <laughs> it's actually very smart. You know, this is actually very, it's sharp and it's, it's really, it, it like you said, it, it punches up. It's it sort is. Of, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, and, and, um, you know, and, and it's important to be able to, um, you know, I, I don't want to use the word educate people because that's not what's happening. It's, it's just kind of, um, you're almost creating like a, a peer pressure sort of thing. Like it's yeah. not cool. You know, that's, that's not cool. Like you shouldn't, yeah. you know, right. really like that's what you're doing. Um, I think there was a, there was a piece about, um, how, uh, you know, I think people were angry, uh, that, um, uh, you, you know, because of the racism that was directed against them abroad, uh, when they're the ones who should be able to, um, you know, practice racism against migrant workers in yeah. their own country. Um, so it's, really, it's like, it's, it, there's, a, there's always a truth in, in, in that story that there's something there that is real and you're just sort of uh you're making it more accessible by making us laugh at the absurdity yeah yeah i mean yeah. you know recently with the corona thing uh we did a series of articles about um uh, a guy whose initials are kef alif um oh. <laughs> 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 and uh, and this guy uh you know goes out uh regardless of uh, you know, warnings that he needs to stay at home so yeah, that yeah. he doesn't, you know, and, and he's he's this brave young man, you know, who, who goes out anyway because he's not scared of a puny, you know, shitty little virus, um, you know, and, and so we wrote an article telling him about, you know, why he should stay at home anyway. Um, and then the next day we wrote another article, you know, admonishing this asshole <laughs> you know, who's, who's going out despite, you know, the article we wrote the day before telling him to stay at home. <laughs> you know? you know, it's, it's almost like like a poetic force that adds it's it's like the sort of a, a neighbor to the political force that we see it's like a, yeah 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 you know, I mean, it, don't, don't get me wrong we, we spend a lot of time you know taking the piss out of you know political uh, authorities right sure. i mean there's some risk here is, is is it a newspaper that's published out of one of these countries or well, is it, so 
so most of the so the 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 primary um, outlet is online. I mean, most of our following yeah. is online, you know, on our social media accounts. Uh, but we also have a membership program in which people can sign up and, and get uh, you know the print edition, uh, like a monthly print edition delivered to them. But it's not based uh, out of one of these. Uh, it's not a, it's not a Gulf country operation. It's a. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Well. Uh, no, no, it's not. It's not. It's not in the Gulf. But, but, uh, but no. I mean, it's. It's. Uh, you know, we would have to like keep where where they uh, operate. Uh, you know, um, uh, confidential. But, uh, but it yeah. is uh, the yeah. the paper itself is published out of London, um, and so okay. you know it gets okay. distributed from there to to various um, various parts of the world. Right. Um, right. Okay. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's look. It's it's been really hard to uh, you know mentally uh, separate. What's going on in um, you know in the Middle East, uh, and you know right now obviously everybody's thinking about Corona instead of you know all the conflicts that we were uh, you know reporting on before that, um, and we're trying to at the moment you know also just let people laugh a little bit you know and and um, uh, you know kind of let them breathe you know and, and not sure. constantly panic and and you know live in the anxiety of thinking about a pandemic that they can't control us. Yeah. Um, but but it has been a really um, you know valuable way to feel engaged with what's going on uh, in the Middle East without um, you know having to necessarily be there and to you know be able to spend some time to reflect on what's going on because um, reporting on the region is incredibly draining and um, and it's it's really hard to um, you know take care of yourself because obviously the people that you're reporting on are enduring so much more than whatever it is you're going through, you know, just by retelling their stories. They're the ones who are living the actual stories, right? Sure. Um, and so it's it, it's been a very healthy way of kind of pouring in some of that energy um, into something that is not just um, you know, focusing on the uh, the misery that has happened and, and focusing on it without seeing a real impact or real change in the situation of the people that you're reporting on. Uh, you know, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Josie Ensor, who, who I, uh, I, I was actually going to mention, she was an old roommate of mine. Oh, and, uh, there you go. Yeah. She, she wrote this wonderful piece and it was a really heartbreaking piece about, you know, looking back at this body of work um, and realizing that none of it mattered, you know, that, that none of it made a, a difference, you know, that, that must've um, been her final piece for the guardian from them or uh, uh, for the, the telegraph. Uh, for yeah. the telegraph. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. It was, uh, it was sort of a piece just looking back at, at, uh, you know, her years of, of, uh, doing incredible journalism, yes. uh, for them in, you know, in the region and, um, you know, and, and it is something that makes you wonder, like, what was the purpose of all of that? Like, uh, um, you know, and, and but you can't you can't let yourself uh, think in those terms um, because it's not your job to necessarily change the world. You know, and if that's what you're hoping out of being a journalist, you're, you're going to be disappointed. Um, yeah. But but it does. You know, when you talk to people. Um, and you realize that the, you know that they let you into their lives to you know for a brief moment to tell you of the things that they've endured and the things that they that they suffered through, um, and that all you have to offer is you know words in you know ethereal words in uh, uh, in a publication somewhere, and um, and and you know they continue to suffer in the aftermath, and you continue to witness that and to see it. I mean, for endless reasons, your reporting and, and many other journalists reporting at least will help shape how we look back on this moment. And as long as, 
it would be a, a major defeat if the regime ends up winning that narrative. And I, I don't think they will long run. And it will have all these sort of uh, all these reports, all these documents uh, to prove otherwise, to say that, uh, no, this is what happened. And uh, the world should learn from this very, very big mistake. And uh, I, I'm going to share your uh, your links to the episode. I'll, I, I want sort of people to know your storytelling craft and that human uh, component. And I'll also link up al-hudud uh, satire as well so people can laugh too. They can laugh, they can cry, they can sort of uh, learn more about you that way. I really hope, Kareem, for me this is fantastic, we covered 90 minutes of terrain. <laughs> we did it through video on a whim. I asked you to do this minutes before we started recording, if you'd be okay with video. We both look rather barbaric, but that's fine. <laughs> Coronavirus is allowing us to degrade at home, uh, <laughs> properly domesticated, so that's fine. As long as you're showering once every few days, I think it's Yeah, okay. I think that's uh, that should be okay. You know, you wash your hands so much often anyway, so yeah. so it doesn't, uh, uh, you know, plus I think extraordinary times call for Change extraordinary beards. Time you know. to time and maybe in a month. <laughs> yeah, I hope, you know, if we do like a second iteration of the show, like I, I will try to make sure that I'm wearing a different shirt. <laughs> it would be very bad if we both look like this. Just <laughs> exactly more, the same. More of that, yeah. <laughs> this was a thrill for me and I look forward to seeing you in person once this pandemic passes so it thank was, you for your time it was an honor for me and and, um, and such a such a wonderful um, opportunity to to connect with you and um, and I'm truly grateful for for what you do and for the example you've set to so many human beings because you're a you're a good human being and uh, we need more of you I'll say the same back to you Habibi so we'll speak soon thank you Ronnie Thanks for listening, and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.